podcast this week. It's a real fingernails biter as we talk to that movie's stars, Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed. We say, come on, Eileen, with Eileen star Thomas and McKenzie and her director, William Aldroyd, and our wish that Richard Curtis, the writer of Genie, joins us on the podcast, finally comes true. Although he's probably been on before, right? I think so, yes. Probably, right? Probably. Hmm. Actually. Stars flock to this podcast. Sir Richard Curtis. Sir Richard Curtis. If you, is he a sir? He is to me. He is to you. All right. <laughs> All that, plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is now fast approaching the 600th episode and tickets for its celebratory live show are now on sale at kingsplace.co.uk. Woohoo! There you go. Maybe not quite as humorous as his usual bits. Ha ha ha. But it gets the point across. It does. It does get the point across. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. I was going to say, Hello, Pod. I'm Empire Podcast. <laughs> and welcome to this week's Chris Hewitt. Uh, I am in the studio this week. I'm joined, as ever, by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Great big fucking nerd, James Dyer, is here. Hello, James. Hi, Chris. How are you, James? Not good, Chris. Why, James? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like if I tell you now, Helen will get introduced to this podcast next week. So, Helen, why don't, we, why don't we bring Helen into the conversation? Because at the moment, she's not here. Because you haven't announced her. So she's, oh, she's, not already spoken. Here. she's already spoken. I have already spoken. Uh, yeah, she, she, Hello, I'm Helen. I, I'm I, here. I, I, Hello. She's, she's like, a problem. Uh, she's she inserted like herself. Cricket. She's always a voice in the back of my head. She is. She inserted herself into the intro, much like you do. Uh, it's like, has he, has he finished the intro? No. no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Uh, Helen O'Hara, our geek queen, is here. Hello, Helen. Hello. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Yes. Excellent, excellent. See, that was much quicker. Jimbo, fucking go on, go on. You, you know we're, we, we, we're, we're, we're tied for time this week, but okay. yes, go for it. You know how we've spoken about the Empire Podcast subreddit? Oh, no. It's all fucking kicked off. Oh, no. Because let Why me tell you what's happened. Off? First of all... Have you been sharing nudes again? A little bit. The Pilot TV Pod right. subreddit was banned this week. Yes. And Chris... Finally. Chris. <laughs> yes. Why did you do it? Um, fun for the lols. <laughs> now, I bang on about this at length on the Pilot TV podcast that I've already recorded, but it's going out on Monday, so I will keep this relatively brief. But not only was the Pilot Pod banned on Wednesday, literally shut down You've by Reddit. No, well, You've so been shadow banned. Pilot was banned, but the actual for, uh, subreddit was shut down for spam. The, I have no sorry, idea why. The Pilot subreddit, the has, pilot been subreddit shut has been shut down. The Pilot subreddit has been shut down by Reddit. It's been blocked. It's been banned. There's now a thing that just says this, this subreddit has been banned. But then I have also been suspended from Reddit. You have been suspended. I know and this. All of my posts on the Empire subreddit have been deleted. Why is this? I don't know. I don't understand what's happening and I don't understand how to find out. But now whenever I try to post on the Empire subreddit, it is instantly deleted with a little bin icon next to it. So it just never comes up. Okay, I admit it. It was me. Um, I just thought it'd be really funny. And in my defence, it very much it's, is. It's chucklesome. It's really fun. It's chucklesome. I, I, I'm very confused. What? Is, okay, so if anyone... If if <laughs> if you're listening to this, Reddit, I presume Reddit is a person. <laughs> yes. yes. Dave Reddit. Reddit. Yes, Mr. Dave Reddit. Uh, if you can unban James. Yeah, someone slid into my DMs and said James has been banned. And I, was, I, I, I could not partridge shrug quicker at them. I was like, mm, I don't give a shit. But you know, don't worry, James. We're 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 on the case. Yeah, we're on we the have case. top men working on it. <laughs> Who top men? The Marcus Brody of Empire is going to sort this yes. out. Yes. <coughs> Sorry, I'm much better, but occasionally, occasionally she she gets gripped by death. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the Marcus Brody. James Dyer speaks a dozen languages. I've probably got <laughs> the grail already. <laughs> He'll blend in, disappear. <laughs> 
Oh, my word. Hello, does anyone speak English? Does anyone know what a Reddit is? Hello, hello, hello. hello. ask me anything. Yes, uh, <laughs> hello, am I the asshole? <laughs> oh, so you've read my Reddit post. Okay, good. I'm glad. When James asks, am I the asshole? What is the answer? Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on, shall we? Unban James, you motherfuckers. I tried to join Reddit and I couldn't because apparently I had already joined Reddit and it had assigned me... Well, they have a twat limit. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Uh, not, had, not apparently it had, a, <laughs> it had assigned me one of those terrible temporary names and I wanted to change oh, it to yeah. something was it, was it Chris Hewitt? <laughs> it, was, it was it was Pilot TV podcast oh. <laughs> come with the king you best not miss <laughs> anyway anyway unban James give me a new account yes. and Helen, what would you, James it, it, it's the week of genie so let's wish for something mm. what would you wish for Reddit 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 Reddit, <laughs> Reddit, 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 Reddit I'm mean, caught in a time loop <laughs> I'd, li- I'd like a Reddit Frog, so it would just say Reddit. 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 Yeah. Um, what would you like? Well, if you could like? wish, if you could wish for anything, but it pertains solely to Reddit, what would it be? <laughs> I, I, you'd, I you'd, don't even have a framework of reference to answer that Helen, question. You would hundred percent wish for me to be unbanned and oh, the Pilot sure. TV podcast Reddit to be restored. That's, restored that's to its rightful place. Very close to my heart. Um, <laughs> Look, there I, are three to four people out there who are really upset that this has gone away. Yeah, poor Keith. <laughs> poor Keith. Poor, poor Keith. Kevin. He is bereft. A single tear rolleth down his cheek. Uh, anyway, enough of this. Reddit nonsense. Uh, let's talk more about us. Uh, so, the 600th episode, I wasn't kidding, in the introduction, has indeed gone on sale. Christ is hot in here. Uh, the 600th episode has gone on sale. Kingspice.co.uk. It is Saturday, January 20th at King's Place, our spiritual home. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. A lot of great stuff. So, it's, it's on sale right now. So, uh, go and pick up your tickets while you still can. Wahahaha. But then streaming tickets will be available as well mm. if we sell out, mm. which hopefully we will. Uh, anyway, it's all Hi. very exciting. Yay. Yeah, good stuff. Should we have a question? Please. At mind underscore doc. At mind underscore Doc, who asks, given the pod's general, well, yours, general aversion to prequels that shed a positive light on a character from a franchise via an origin story and the apparent success of this with Wonka, not apparent, my friend, it's fucking incredible. What next franchise villain-esque character would you actually want this for? Do any of you want to hear my pitch for Thanos, a true underdog story? Oh, I don't no. think you do. I was do. sure that was oh, what no. he was going to go to as well. <laughs> um, but if we're to, including Wonka, then we're not talking strictly villains, are we? I no, but... Like, oh, I mean, there Wonka were a lot is of a villain. Ignore Wonka. Look, ignore... There were a lot of deaths on the tour and that's... No one perhaps... died. No one died. Kids are totally fine. You see them at the end. I mean, yes, you do. But also, I mean, come on. Mm, I don't believe it. Anyway. They're all dead. They're all dead. They're so, all dead. So what do we what do we see at the end? Taxidermy. Life model decoys? Yeah. Life model decoys. Umpa Lumpas wearing like skin dancer masks. Oh my oh god. No. Now I'm now I'm interested. <laughs> now I'm interested. So the so the kids get home. Farouk Assault. Can you name them all? Farouk Assault. So Mike TV. Mike TV. Dave. <laughs> oh boy. Dave Reddit. <laughs> Augustus Gloop. Augustus Gloop and. If you girl. say Dave read it again, <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. 
Violet Beauregard. Violet Beauregard is the Violet one who goes blue. Beauregard. How do you know all this stuff? It just goes we, in we, there what and we gets... What we do is we read books. I, I, I don't know if you've heard of it. But... Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure I'm good class Roald Dahl as books, but carry on. I've got oh. a, I've, whoa. Oh. Whoa. <laughs> is that controversial? I, I think he's controversial. I'm not sure that's the He's controversial. <laughs> His books are not... The fact that he wrote books is not controversial. That is incontrovertible. Mm. I think it's perhaps because every time I read the twits, I feel too seen. Mm. I was going to say your beard is a little bit too full of food. Um, <laughs> so please do brush that. Yes. yes. Um, James's version would be the twats. Mm. Just the, I do have a giant peach. I, oh, thank God you finished that sentence. <laughs> uh, also, I've roomed with you in Barcelona. I know the... <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> Less said about that, the better. It's born. It's born, oh, James. Boy. Anyway, let's not go down the greatest hits route. No. Uh, anyway, so, yes. Uh, Wonka. Yes. Yes. He is no. All those kids are fine. So, but what James is saying that they go home at the well, end of the fine day. Fine is too strong a word. But okay. Well, they're, they're fine. Alive, but they're alive. and instead of so the parents then continue life with their children, but they don't quite recognize that say Augustus Gloop isn't Augustus Gloop anymore. He is several Oompa Loompas wearing Augustus standing Gloop's on, skin, standing on each other's shoulders. Yeah. Mm. Which, I mean, look, I think we've na- we've nailed it just with that answer. That is a, a fantastic. It's not, but it isn't a prequel. It's it's really a sequel. I think that might be the. That's darker than anything Roald Dahl ever wrote. <laughs> which is not, yeah, which is saying quite something. Is, um, yeah, that's a tale of the unexpected okay. and then some. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I hate this there question. Must, I hate good, it. Good, good, yeah. good. Let's, let's, let's engage with it some more, shall but we? Let's, there let's... must be, there must be a villain. Although my thing, with, my thing with prequels is, unless it's like Temple of Doom. Yeah. Which is very much like just another adventure that sure. happens to take happens place, to take place before. a year before Raiders. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, obviously something like Godfather Part 2, where it is shedding light on what came before, mm-hmm. but it's not a Michael Corleone prequel. No. It's a Fito Corleone prequel. So that's that's totally fine. So but, let me just upset yeah. you the way you upset me by asking this question. I didn't ask this question, Helen. Well, I you, chose this question. You chose it mm-hmm. um, to ask to us. Um, Hans Gruber. Yes. That's <gasps> the correct him answer. What made money so much? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love gold. Where, His famous catchphrase. Well, Die Hard How Year One was choose? the thing, wasn't it, for ages? Like yeah. they were going to be the McLean origin, oh. which we absolutely were not on board for. Yeah. But like, I, you know, I I don't want to just say, I want to see Hans Gruber, but I want to see him growing up with Simon Gruber, and to see if he was constantly doing like simple Simon type things with his brother as well. I want to see the other Gruber brother who hangs out with Paddington. Oh, oh. A little bird. Oh, oh, no, hang on, hang on. This is a fascinating trio suddenly. It is, isn't it? Suddenly. Okay, so we have the master criminal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have his brother, Simon. I think younger brother, slightly younger brother. Younger brother, like. yeah. Yeah, Simon, yeah. Who, who really worships him, look up, looks up to him. They are very much like hand in glove, working together, uh, you know, coming up with schemes. Yes. And then you have their other brother, who just likes antiques and he bears. He just loves antiques. Actually, he is he he would be the brother, wouldn't he? I guess age-wise, Jim Broadbent. He's not that as far off. We're talking as you Jim think. Broadbent. Yeah. We are yeah. talking Jim Broadbent. He can't. I mean, he could, I guess, be an older half brother if you want. But I feel like he's the little brother, you know, trailing behind them with a teddy bear in one hand. After the tragic deaths of his brothers, Hans, yeah. who fell out of a building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It happens to the best of us. Uh, on Christmas Eve as well. Imagine getting that phone call. Mm. It might have been Christmas Day by that point. I mean, it seemed oh, quite late at I mean, night. That's, that's, How far was he falling? That's, <laughs> that's proper coal in your stocking right there. 
Oh, please. The Krampus was coming for that guy anyway. <laughs> bring, bring. Herr Gruber, Fräulein Gruber, Frau Gruber, presumably. Frau Gruber, I have some very bad news. Your son, your son Hans has just fallen out of the building. Does, does Arnold generally do these kind of calls? I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> Werner Herzog is the cop. Uh, Werner Herzog is, is Gruber's dad. Oh it's my it. god! It's the only. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only. It's thing. the only. It's the only, only possibility. Sense. It's the only possibility for the ease of our escape. Um, <laughs> a nice libation. So so so. <laughs> Christmas, Christmas Day, Gruber household. This is what, 1988. right. All right, okay. okay. Uh, they get a phone call. Yeah. And so sorry. So Hans sorry. Is Hans is dead. Yeah. Oh, no, mein Gott in Himmel. No, that's <laughs> what. And, what? And, and they're very, very sad. They're yeah. very upset about yes. it. And, and meanwhile, then, Simon, who's Simon, working in England, presumably working on his accent. Hook, line, and sinker. Okay. He's on the train from St. Ives, presumably counting people. <laughs> <laughs> Probably doing some push-ups so he'll look good in a tank top also. Oh, it does look very I mean, good William in Sadler top. has that covered. Werner <laughs> Herzog, as Mr. Gruber Sr. gets the call, Hello. Hans is dead. <laughs> oh no. So Man, then, God in Himmel, my son do, has died. How does Simon yeah. and little Mr. Gruber, little Mr. Gruber react to this? Well, Simon is, is he's radicalized. Furious. He's radicalized. He's radicalized. He's radicalized. He's already a thief. You know. he, yeah, yeah, true. Uh, and then, so he goes off and starts studying. Starts plotting. Plotting. Mm. Yeah, starts uh, studying. Bloody revenge. Bloodying revenge, okay. On John McLean, mm-hmm. right? Uh, meanwhile, Mr. Gruber, which is his first name, mm-hmm. Mr. Gruber, uh, he's, he's, he's too young at that point to really be affected by it. Okay, but, even, even though he doesn't seem too young in, uh, in, the, in the Paddington movies. I don't know, Broadband's got range. Okay. I think he can play sure. early to late teens okay. in this. Uh, so he's, he throws himself into his studies. So, but, but, but the thing that really, the, 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 the straw that breaks the camel's back is when he gets another phone call seven years later. Hello! <laughs> What's that? My son has exploded in a helicopter. <laughs> Nord des <laughs> Oh God. On the Canadian border. Oh no, the darkness that it swallows us whole has once again swallowed. Every time I do Werner Herzog, he, he goes dangerously close to Prince Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am somehow possessed uh, by an existential uh, nihilism. Was, I'm very, very upset about <laughs> Simon's death. Uh, 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 King Charles. King Charles. King Charles. I'm not used to that. Like the Spaniel. <laughs> what is going on this week? Oh, anyway, so there you go. You have your. So then they get the phone call. Yeah. And and little Mr. Gruber. Little Mr. Gruber. That sounds like a penis. It does sound like a penis. Wrong. Come yeah. on. That's it's, not it's great. It's you call your penis. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. yeah. I don't call my penis. <laughs> I mean, I, I do not call my penis. Why are we discussing this on the podcast? Gruber. That's not I, the point. I do not call little hands Gruber. <laughs> No, I call it the I call it the Nakatomi Plaza. Of course you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it's forty stories of, <laughs> of sheer adventure, and it only and, and the top explodes. The top explodes <laughs> just once a year. <laughs> anyway, oh god. Okay. Okay. All right. Listen, this, um, is, this is our ticket out of here. Everything. This is I'm our not, ticket no, out. To be honest, I understand it because you do count to three, and there will not be a fourth. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> Oh dear, bring me my detonators. <laughs> bring me you, my detonators. You ask for miracles, Theo. <laughs> anyway, anywho, anywho. So uh, so then he is, 
is suitably well not in range but this but he chooses the the higher ground mm. uh, higher ground, the higher ground. And he studies antiquities and and, uh, and goes off and becomes friends with a bear with a bear yeah. yeah so Paddington and Die Hard are in the same Cinematic universe, universe in, yeah. this, in this conception hmm. so again not a prequel this is more of a kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern type approach side to a sidequel, side if you mm. will. But I like it. I mean, I'm, I'm literally looking through, we've got a, a list on the website of the best movie villains and like Ooh. almost all of them have a prequel already. Really? Like it's, this is my issue. It's not like I never, ever want to see a prequel. It's like we are doing it too much. There are too many. They don't all need one. Fader. Prequel. Prequel. Lecter. Prequel. prequel. Joker. Prequel. prequel. Nurse Ratchet. Prequel. prequel. Mm-hmm. I mean, Freddy Krueger. Prequel. prequel. Is it, come uh, on. Yeah, is it a prequel? Gollum kind know. of a prequel, but, you know, we can have a good discussion about that. Jar Jar uh, Binks. Prequel. <laughs> the problem and the reason why I think we prequelize a lot of bad guys mm. is because they die at the end. So yeah, no, I, and it's, I like, it's one of those things where you go, I really but, enjoyed that bad guy. Like Clarence Bodiger, right? Clarence Bodiger, one of the great bad guys. You'd like to see more Clarence. I'd I love Dick Jones. I work for Dick Jones. Dick Jones. But he doesn't have, yeah, look, the ones with name recognition, but, but that's, they're not doing it because they want to know more about Clarence Bodiger. They're doing it because they've got a recognizable name and this is a way to sell a film. And it just shouldn't be the only thing that determines what we get to see. And it shouldn't just be about name recognition. And if, if you think your hero is a bit bland and cookie cutter and you think there's more stories to tell about the villain, uh, I, I just feel like we're, we, we can, we can over-sympathize with the bad guy. And we as a society are giving too much leeway maybe to the bad guys and not enough to the good guys. Like, you know, it feels like people who are trying to do and say and be the right things and, you know, make an ill-judged remark or do something out of character once get a lot more shit for it than someone who literally doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> you know, not naming anyone in particular. Not naming any Trumps or any Johnsons or anybody <laughs> else. But, you know, and and I just, I feel like we are over sympathetic to bad guys. We are quick, I, far quicker than we should be to dig into them. I don't, I don't know about them. that. I, I think, I think, let's, I'm, I'm going to use Clarence Bodiger once again as an example, because there, there were sequels about Robocop that yeah. focused on Robocop. But Clarence Bodiger is a delicious bad guy. I am not sympathetic to Clarence Bodiger. I want, but, but I want to see him do more fun shit. Yeah. The problem, of course, with uh, films that focus on uh, prequel or not, films mm. that focus on a on a bad guy is that they do tend to defang the bad guy. Yeah, they do tend to also. give him, yeah, a, a bit more human motivation. I don't want that. I want my bad guys to be just absolutely just well, unapologetic twats. Well, this was the problem with the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, wasn't it? You know, it's like, but but I. I, I hate bad two-dimensional villains by magnitudes more than I like, you know, you know, like like I love a great three-dimensional villain. I love a villain with depth. I love a villain who you like I say, you don't necessarily sympathize with, or rather you do, like you don't agree with, but you sympathize with. Like you can at the very least see where they're coming from, see what they're trying to do. And I think there's tragedy in the misguidedness of antagonists. And I think motiveless malignancy just drives me fucking mad. Unless you're Shakespeare, in which case you can get away with it. Thanks, Iago. But I, I, I really hate that, and I think it's lazy writing, mm. and it drives me nuts. Well, it can it depends. It's very execution dependent, but just yeah, we we look. Not every villain in the AFI or the Empire top one hundred villains needs an origin story. Agreed. That's, that's quickly, quickly read out the top ten, very quick. 
Okay, the Empire Top 10. Empire Top 10. Number 10, The Alien. I mean, <laughs> really? A, I mean, he's a villain. <laughs> is it? I don't know if it is an ant- well, is it a villain? That's like saying the villain of like the day after tomorrow okay, is weather. Okay, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't think there is a villain. Anyway. Yeah, it's like the villain of Jaws is the shark. Yeah. Or actually, the, it's Mayor Fawn, it's isn't Mer- it? Yeah. It's... Yeah. But anyway, yeah. number nine, number, number Voldemort. Nine, number oh come on, mm, number come on. eight, Anton Chigurh. I'm going to say that Snape is a better villain than Voldemort. He's not a villain, but well, he is for most of it. He's a secret ally. Spoilers <laughs> ever for Harry Potter. Number seven, Kylo Ren. Oh what the? F- number... That feels like your contribution, Helen. <laughs> well, I didn't write this. I don't think. All right. Number okay. six is Hans Landa, so I definitely didn't write that. Okay, mm. that's a good one. Uh, number five is Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Number four is Hans Gruber. Hans Gruber. Number Robbed. three is Loki. What? Loki. Number two is the Joker. And number one is Mr. D. Vader. I, I, as Darren who, Vader. Darren Vader. Darren Vader. The less Keith Reddit. <laughs> I, it bothers me that Gruber is down there. And also Loki. Loki is a good villain. But at the time that list was written, he was nowhere near as good a villain. It was Asgard. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're getting off track. But we are. Anyway. Um, but, uh, Unlike go. us. Good villains and they all deserve prequels because prequels are great. Hooray. Oh. Okay, so <laughs> if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, you can get in touch with me on Twitter. That's right, Twitter. Uh, <laughs> if it's still around this time next week anyway. Uh, and uh, I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can slide into my DMs. You can reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing, of course. Or you can reply to a panicked shout out every now and again. All right, we've got a lot of guests this week. we got Richard Curtis. we got Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed. And we have William Aldroyd and Thomas and Mackenzie. Sir Richard Curtis, obviously. Richard Curtis? Yeah. Richard Curtis. Sir, Sir Richard, Richard Curtis. Sir Richard, Lord Curtis, if you will, of Love Actually Shire. Uh, so, yes, about 30-odd years ago, Richard Curtis wrote a film, a Christmas, BBC One Christmas movie called Bernard and the Genie, which starred Alan Cumming and Lenny Henry and Rowan Atkinson. And it was screened once again in 1993. Otherwise, it has lain in the archives, the BBC archives. Uh, so Richard Curtis has decided it would be a capital idea to pick it up, dust off the cobwebs, and give it a bit of a reshooting um, with a bit of an American slant. So, hence, Genie, which is out this week on Sky Cinema and stars Melissa McCarthy, Papa Eziedu, and Alan Cumming. <gasps> Coming full circle, if you will. I spoke to Richard Curtis, for who is he? James, you must be, I don't know where you were. <laughs> I was James. at his house. I was confused why I didn't come home. I did see that the walls did move at one point. James had disguised himself perfectly as a wallpaper. Yeah, um, like Peter in the Hunger, Hunger Games. <laughs> Precisely. Oh, that is so <laughs> fucking flat. Anyway, here we are, Richard Curtis talking about Genie and what a Richard Curtis Christmas is for him. Aww. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the writer of Genie, Mr. Richard Curtis. How are you, sir? I'm perky this morning, thank you very much. <laughs> Christmas is in the air. Oh, you, you feel galvanised this time of year? Is it in your bones now, Christmas? Well, I've, I've, I've subjected myself to um, a lot of Christmas jobs this year, so I've actually been working on a, 
uh, stage show at yes. the Royal Festival Hall. So it's very much been um, been part of my whole year. I was getting Christmassy in June. <laughs> that could have the opposite effect and make you hate Christmas. You could turn full Scrooge. I'm just going to be very glad when that when they you know when that show is over and I can start worrying about Christmas presents. Fair enough. How's that going, Christmas? Actually. Um, fun, actually. It's a kind of, oh, I don't know, what can I just go? It's like an advent calendar of all my favourite Christmas songs and Christmas stories and Christmas right. poems and everything. So it's quite fun. It's genuinely curating. I've only written a few bits for it. So okay, it's okay. Fun. That's interesting. So so your, Christmas is definitely on your brain and it has been for quite some time. I don't yes. know whether this is an accident or whether you just, you're a bit like Shane Black writes a lot of movies set in and around Christmas Does as well. He? Yeah, you're like the English equivalent oh, of Shane okay. Black. Yeah, I don't know why it is. I think maybe No, I don't think I don't think Christmas should be very special to me, but um I did travel around a lot when I was young. I lived in the Philippines and Sweden and I think that we had to make Christmas wonderful because we never had any of our relatives. Okay, there. Of course, so I of think course. it was a particularly sort of intense try hard be happy time of year and also Christmas top of the pops. <laughs> I mean, literally my favourite television programme of the year. Wasn't that on just after the Queen's speech? Yeah, it was always on, and it was always problematic because I had to... <laughs> we were always having lunch during it. So I was strangely enthusiastic about clearing from the table. So I used to leave the TV on and then take five minutes to move the dishes so that I could catch David Bowie. That's amazing. Uh, this project, this, this, this movie, Genie, did it make you feel, in a way, nostalgic? Because it, I'm fascinated by how this came about. For people who don't know, this is a, how would you say, a remake, retooling, reworking yeah. of Bernard and the Genie, uh, which was shown on, on BBC at Christmas 1991, I believe. Could uh, be. I mean, Alan Cumming, who was the star of yeah. that, I think was still wearing short trousers from school. <laughs> I mean, it's a very long time ago. I love that. I love what he's in this as well. Yeah. And it's, it's come full circle, yeah. in a way. How did it come about? Well, when after I'd written um, the original TV film, which is a very happy experience, it was done with Lenny and Rowan, who are two of my best friends, yeah. and it was directed by Paul Wayland, who is one of my. So I have a very rosy memory of of the whole experience, and I liked the film. Uh, and then, sort of a few years afterwards, I thought I might turn it into a movie. I think probably before I made Four Weddings, even. Okay. So I'd sort of knocked off a version of it then, and I always therefore had a yearning for it because it was much more expanded, and it was about, you know, in, in the original it was just a sort of sad singleton, and in this case it was a family man, and he loses his family, and then he gets his family back. Mm -hmm. So I'd had it loitering in the back of my mind, and then I thought a couple of years ago, oh, go on, let's do that. And I still believe in the basic message of it, which is you can have as many wishes in, as, as you wish, mm -hmm. but the best thing in the world is just having dinner with your family. You yeah. know, that, that, so I still believed in the message of it. And I thought it would be fun to make one proper American movie before I die. <laughs> so you fully immersed yourself in the American experience, albeit with a British lead. With a British lead, and with yeah, with a British lead. But um, you know, just the idea of being allowed to shoot something in Times Square and to have the Empire State Building in a wide shot. These this, these are very important things. How and when did you do that? Did, was there any jiggery popular? Because that's the, that's that's the Rockefeller. 
Plaza oh, there's Tree. a bit of. They did a lot of kind of drone shooting okay. beforehand and got gorgeous. And there's this lovely effect that in the film where this kind of out of focus Christmassy thing, mm. where in all the wide shots the edge of the fame are blurred, and yeah. um, the director, who's the most wonderful man, sort of showed me this, and I thought, oh, that's great. I can. I can contribute to the myth of New York at Christmas. <laughs> so can, can you tell me through how you approached the, uh, the the writing of this? Did you go back and reread your original script? Did yeah, you go back yeah. And no, I did. I went back to the original and I went back to the original of the long film and then, you know, updated it hugely, added new stuff that I hadn't done. There's a big sort of family scene in this where one of the members of the family literally goes to hell. Um, so I kind of, uh, it was like there were three writers, me, 1991, me, 1996, and me now. It's quite fun. It's co-written with myself. <laughs> How did Richard Curtis now uh, assess Richard Curtis back in the Well, look, he had mild admiration for some of the early work, you know. I, there was some, sometimes it is comforting to go back and find out that you used to write jokes. Um, <laughs> but it was also nice to be able to add, you know, new things that I care about. Because there's real heart here. Yeah, it is meant to be. I mean, I do think Christmas is, you know, unfortunately at the moment in the UK, Christmas is a rather a tough time. Because there's so much sort of, um, you know, poverty and need mm. around, which really worries me. And that, and even that makes me happy because it's lovely to make a film that can, you know, distract and delight people, I hope, at Christmas. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I've, you know, I, as the year goes by, I store up some Christmas thoughts. What would happen if a Santa in a supermarket actually gave you a decent present? <laughs> Um, I'm I'm fascinated also about where you were as a as a writer when you first wrote Bernard and the Genie, and because you just come off the Tall Guy, my beloved the right. Tall Guy. Oh, okay, was it? Was uh, yeah. It? Oh, okay. So uh, just just to fill you in, Richard, you, you had just finished the Tall Guy. Blackout goes my, forth. My, my my son gave me an internet quiz, answered these twelve questions about Richard Curtis films, and I got <laughs> three right. I couldn't even remember Hugh Grant's name in Notting Hill. Really? Oh dear, oh dear. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. So so at that point, where what were you? You hadn't. Well, hadn't I think really... I was flexing my. You know, I was flexing my muscles. Them. It's quite odd. My first two big jobs, uh, which were not the I Caught News and Blackadder, were very heartless. Yeah. I think what happened is, I mean, the end of Blackadder 4 was okay, but they were kind of satirical, sort of aggressively comic things. So I like, had a decade of having stored up the sort of softer and more sentimental side of me. Yeah. So I would say that was the start of me thinking, oh, now that I don't have to get this through Rowan and Ben Elton and John Lloyd. I'm at last allowed to be a bit romantic and a bit sentimental because there were so many films like that that I loved when I was young. That's right. And, and that and The Tall Guy as well, they, they were solo adventures. So you weren't, yeah. you weren't co-writing. No. What, what did that mean for you? Um, you know, I missed Ben's extraordinary joke writing. I mean, I, I, the, the luxury of co-writing a sitcom with him where we used to just sort of send each other drafts and come back with all these marvellous new sparkles. Um, but it was, you know, it was more, you know, more possible to deal with more things, you know, you really care about if you're doing it on your own because the hardest thing to agree on with a co-writer is sort of emotional 
pitch. Yeah. It's very easy in a way to think of a good plot and to think of good jokes. But if you say to someone, this is what love feels like, they're probably, you know, not going to agree. And if you say this is what two Brits. This is what my <laughs> Christmas feels like, they're probably not going to agree, you know. So it's a it is a it was a new a new freedom. And uh, and now retooling this again. And when did you know you were writing it for for Papa? When did you know you were writing it for? I, I presume Alan was. No, just no, a Alan fun was thing that Alan was a, was a was a whim. Okay. Um, uh, I think. Well, it was originally certainly the version that I wrote originally was um, was written for a male genie again. Okay. So it was only when we had this idea about Melissa, and then suddenly Melissa was on board. Uh, that I started thinking woman. And I must say that was an amazing month, just thinking, well, what can I do with that? Love the idea of a friendship between a kind of 30-year-old man and a 50-year-old woman. That seemed to me uh, kind of adorable. And then Melissa herself came in for a week and we fooled around with the lines. And that was really delightful to have her just say, well, I think I could say this and then burble for a minute and I could just <laughs> quickly type down her funny jokes. So to some extent, um, I had a co-writer there. Okay. And, and then Papa was just, you know, we were just, it's quite hard to find these romantic leads who have a kind of softness and an innocence to them. And Alan was so brilliant originally. And Papa, you know, I've, I've seen him in very serious plays. And I thought, I wonder whether or not he's going to be able to do that and then just on day one there was a sort of guilelessness and charm about him so you have the, the this little spark as well you have melissa you have mark maron as well the, there's a lovely romance going on there i mean mark maron was such a joy mark maron very exciting i'm a huge fan of his and lewis guzman can you imagine oh i never dreamed that moment would come in my career <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I would work with the great Guzman. So that was, and he was on stormy form. Um, so no, it's a, I, I love a perky cameo. Have you done Mark Maron's podcast yet? No. No, maybe he doesn't like me. Come on, Richard. <laughs> actually, one way, I, I have to be But doesn't he to demand you, your confessional? Uh, yeah, I think yeah. I might have, to, might have to open up a bit too much. Uh, as you are gearing up to Christmas, what is a Richard Curtis Christmas like? Uh, no, let me think. What is a what? What do we do now that's unusual? I mean, the truth of the matter is, it's very communal. We live in a village, and sort of thirty-five of us have Christmas lunch <laughs> together. Uh, so it's quite fun. We don't have that intense moment when you get your family together and realise you don't like each other anymore. <laughs> um, it's when you get all your friends together and realise you don't like each other anymore. Um, so it's delightful. And we go up to Suffolk and kind of it's just very rural. And yeah. so uh, Christmas is quite is quite relaxing. What about presents? Do you do presents, uh, do you do presents the night before as the, as, as the clock ticks around to One midnight? One present the night before. One present the night before. The rest of them... Uh, um, on the day itself. Um, and my main job is to buy as many presents as possible for Emma, <laughs> my wife, because she's brilliant at helping buying the presents. She basically buys the presents for the kids. And then I buy, you know, my, my son's a book about Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> but because she's done most of the work, the expectation on me to, you know, deliver for her is pretty high. Is there is there greater expectation because you have written probably the most famous present buying scene? I mean, probably, you know, it's, it's that's based. The Roman scene yeah. was based on a ghastly incident. <laughs> really? Well, no, just when I had ten minutes and the guy wrapped it for for, for twenty five. <laughs> 
So there must be extra pressure there uh, as well. Yeah, no, well, I, I, I am expected to deliver. But the great thing now is that my daughter understands my wife better than I do. And so she keeps sending me links all the way through November and December saying, I think, you know, it might be worth looking at this pair of trousers. Fair enough. And what is, after Christmas Double Pops, of course, um, what is the Curtis family Christmas movie on Christmas? Um, we're very keen on Elf. Yeah. Uh, I keep trying to convince them of the genius of White Christmas, but it's quite a hard sell. <laughs> okay. Um, and we're very keen on the Charlie Brown Christmas okay. animation, which is so beautiful. Those are all solid choices. Yeah. We all know the plot of It's a Wonderful Life now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think 10 times is the max for that. Absolutely. And uh, the last thing I'm going to ask you is, has this made you... Nostalgic has has made you think back and be I, I don't know, maybe piqued an interest in revisiting some of your earlier work as well. For example, I mentioned the tall guy earlier on, Richard. <laughs> Would you revisit the tall guy? I always wanted to do the musical of Elephant Man oh. in the West End. I remember when we were shooting it, I thought this is great, you know. <laughs> and and you know, on reflection, it wasn't. I don't know. I, I genuinely, I quote, "Egads, me lads, it's a real pea super uh, every time there's a vlog in London." So, well, I think that um, Emma at the moment is trying to get me to write four weddings and uh, four funerals and a wedding because <laughs> she says we go to so many funerals. Now's the time. Oh, no. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm going to see what pops up in my brain next. Four funerals and a wedding sounds like it could be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But it means I could kill Hugh Grant at last. I've been wanting to kill Hugh Grant for the whole of my career. There you I go. Give him a dramatic death. There you go. Absolutely. I'm I'm up for it. I'm buying up for it. Richard Curtis, get writing immediately. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Lovely to talk to you in your great magazine. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, sir. All right, that is Richard Curtis. We'll be talking about Jeannie later on in the show. Uh, but now let's talk about movie news. Mm. Movie news. I know where you're going to want to start, I think, and that's the Black Phone 2 news, oh, isn't it? yeah, because you know what? I don't think we even mentioned it when it was announced a couple of weeks ago. It was one of those ones that fell through the cracks. It was announced, I think, just after the, the podcast went up, and we forgot to talk about it. Oh, no. So, yeah. But now it's been announced in terms of, so the Black Phone 2, mm-hmm. Scott Derrickson is returning. C. Robert Cargill is also returning as his co-writer. Yeah. It is a continuation of the Black Phone, which was, I think, one of last year's best films I'm going to say not just best horror films I really really liked mm, it it's good and uh, they're all back they're all hey. back Mason Thames is back despite his day job as one of the world's biggest rivers oh god <laughs> he's also in How to Train Your Dragon I see is he? yeah apparently so That's which river nice. does he play in that? <laughs> the Nile it's real real um... Nile dip hey. he's in denial hey. oh boy That's insane Insane. Insane. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Madeline McGraw is back as his sister. Um, and there are a couple of other characters who are back as well. Jeremy Davis as their alcoholic father. Uh, what's interesting about this is that Ethan Hawke mm. is back as the grabber. Now, I don't want to spoil <laughs> the black phone for anybody. But let's just say he wasn't in a position to do a lot of grabbing at the end of that film. So how is he going to be back? To grab again, perhaps he is a. He's perhaps he's going to phone it in as a spectral voice um, from beyond the grave. Beyond the grave. Well, we know ghosts exist in this world. Yeah, so, uh, you know, terrifying. Yeah, you excited about this Hell's Bells? I am. It was a really good film, and um, I, I assume that if they have all those people back, it's because they also have a really good idea. Yes. You know, I feel like Ethan Hawke is in demand enough, and he's doing 
in really, really interesting films these days. So I feel like he wouldn't just want a cash grab, would he? You know, I feel like he's going to want to be there because there's some cool. That is very much this. the hope. I think so. No, I'm 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 here for it. Well, Scott so, Derrickson yeah. said when it, when it was announced a couple of weeks ago, he said that uh, he and C. Robert Cargill and Joe Hill, whose short story mm. the, the Black Film was of based course. upon, uh, they they had no plans for a sequel. They were they were working on something else. Well, certainly Cargill and and Derrickson were working on something else. And then Joe Hill called up and said, "Guys, I've got an idea." And he told them the idea. And apparently, within three hours, they they decided they were going to make it. Amazing. Wow! So it must be one. Must be pretty cool. Heck of an idea. So speaking of the King family, which of course Joe oh, Hill is a part of. Great segue. Thank you, thank you. Uh, the Long Walk <gasps> is being adapted. And it one is of my favourites. Francis Lawrence of The Hunger Games. Who Sorry, is going to be but it is the, the fucking Hunger Games. Well, then he'll <laughs> be very much he'll at be home, very good at it. He? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Francis, what? This is just this new, this week. What? So t- tell us about The Long Walk, Chris, because you've presumably read it. The Long Walk, King Fiend. Uh, well, yes, but it's Richard Bachman, which was, uh, of course, mm. King's pen name. Um, when he wrote The Running Man. When he wrote The Running Man. Um, it is, it's a film that's been, they've been trying to make it for years, and in fact they have made it, but under different names <laughs> um, over the years. And so it is a dystopian future. It's a. It's another kind of, it's not a game show necessarily, but it's a, it's, it's, not dissimilar to the running man in that society has gone completely off the rails and there is this uh, competition called the long walk in which uh, dozens of teenage boys are tasked with embarking upon a long walk Mm. like a very long walk like a walk that takes some days but they're not allowed to stop they're not allowed to slow down mustn't hesitate mustn't pause mustn't hesitate (laughs) they can only take a limited amount of supplies with them Um, oh and the kicker the thing I forgot to mention is that if they do slow down um, a number of times if they stop a number of times they will be killed Uh, and until there is just one left and this happens every single year so this focuses in on this particular um, this particular iteration of the long walk and it's an extraordinary novella that uh, Frank Darabont you'll be shocked to know was trying to make for a long long time uh, and then most recently Andre Overdahl oh, yeah. was attached to, to make it and was actively developing it so that's why this this news has come uh, out of the blue and surprised me because it's one of those you can absolutely see it being updated I mean it's you know it's, it's very much of its time it was written in the either the 70s or the 80s I can't quite remember I believe and, uh, you know, it is all boys in this. I'm sure that instantly going to be one of the things that changes if they're going to update it. Um, but, yeah, it's bleak as hell, as you might imagine. Uh, but as they, go, as they walk along and they talk to each other, you know, friendships form. Um, they, they make enemies. They fall out. Oh, by their, they're tracked as well by the army who will shoot them. If if they fall off the pace, uh, oh. or they try to rebel, or they try to make a run for it, um, it's it's absolutely incredible. But I can also see why it hasn't been made. So maybe Francis Lawrence will be the one to yeah. crack this particular nut. Fingers crossed. Yeah, Jimbo, any any movie news for us? Well, interestingly, and in a strange career move for Michael Waldron, he is now writing. Avengers Kang Dynasty, the film which is never getting made. So that was, a, I, th- I think, a strange, uh, a strange lateral shift for him. Obviously, already, already on board with Secret Wars, but has now taken on the film that will never be made. 
<laughs> well, the film that may change in some aspects of in, its title. In some aspects, read the entire story. It will be, it, yeah. that will be made. There will be a there fifth be, Avengers yes. film. Yes. There will be a sixth Avengers film. Mm-hmm. Whether that film will be the Kang Dynasty exactly. and will focus on Kang, Never gonna happen. I'm not so sure. Yeah, we but shall see. I'm, I'm with you. But yes, I agree. There will be an, another Avengers film, 100%. But I, I'm willing to bet both dollars and donuts that it will not be the Kang Dynasty. I, I feel the same way, but I wouldn't, like, I don't mean, he, he's signing up to make a film that will probably be made. Yes. So, you know, he's not signing up to like, woo, airy fairies. Like, he's <laughs> making a film. We just think the subtitle is going to change. That's yeah. all we're saying. I'm just saying the film has gone to live on a farm upstate. Well, the title has gone to live on the farm upstate, yes. Anyway, <laughs> James, we think it will. Such a strange position to take. So whenever this film comes out, uh, regardless of what it's called, in a few years' time, are you just going to pretend that you yeah, don't see it? Uh, exactly. Okay. okay. All, right, all right. All right. Fair enough. Well, anyway, um, enjoyed Loki, so, we, so we're excited to see what he does with that. I think yeah. I'm right in saying... Also, did you see that Paul Greengrass is coming back to direct a, a new thriller? I did see this. So this is, Another aerial thriller. Yeah, this is Drowning, The Rescue of Flight 1421. And the idea is that a plane crashes into the Pacific just after takeoff. It's flooded. There's an explosion that floods. And then a dozen survivors are in a sort of sealed part of the aircraft on an undersea cliff 200 feet below the surface. Um, and uh, among them is an engineer, his 11-year-old daughter, and his estranged wife is part of the rescue team working to get to them mm. and get them out. Now, what's in- kind of interesting about this is there's a, there's a film coming out, I think next year, with pretty much an identical premise called No Way Up. Um, it doesn't have the elite rescue team bit and the sort of the, you know, the, the personal relationship there. But otherwise, it's pretty much the same deal that there's a bunch of people in a, an air pocket in an airplane at the bottom of the sea. Um, so I'm kind of intrigued. I'm I'm intrigued by that. It's a, it's mm. another sort of Dante's Peak uh, volcano kind of a situation. But yeah. um, obviously, if this is um, a, a Paul Greengrass returning to thrillers, then that's inherently exciting just on its own. Yeah, this is based on a novel by T.J. Newman, mm. whose origin story, if you will, is pretty compelling. She was a stewardess on an American airline. I'm not sure if it was American Airlines, but certainly an an American airline. Mm. And she was writing her debut novel, like basically on like you know a bit like Rowling, you know, on the plane and you know in her spare time. And her debut novel was a a, a novel called Falling about a plane being hijacked. Very good concept. Paul Greengrass is quite good at execution. He is very very good. Uh, I mean, figuratively, figuratively, not. I have never seen him do a head a headshot. I've I've never I've never seen him kill anyone. Just to be clear. But she has to be absolutely 100% clear. I have never, to my knowledge, seen Paul Greengrass slice someone's head off right. on set. It's so important to be clear. It's very important to say that. Yeah. But yeah. But hopefully, listen, maybe I'll read the book. Maybe it's, it's going to be, be, maybe it's gonna yeah. be a, a belter. Yeah. Um, I, otherwise, just to mention, because I know you're both big fans, um, Timothy Oliphant and his hair, oh. and his hair yeah. have signed up for Noah Hawley's Alien TV show. Mm. So he's apparently going to be a sort of a mentor to the character played by Sidney Chandler, who is Wendy, who is a, she is a hybrid, a metahuman with the brain and consciousness of but a child. But the mind of a baby. The mind of a baby, <laughs> but the body of a spider. No, the body of an adult. And he's going to be like a mentor and a trainer for her. So he's probably going to like just saunter about looking cool. Flicking his hair about. Explaining how the world works. That's exciting. It's good, right? Yeah. Anything that gets Timothy Oliphant's hair uh, and its human host. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, onto our it's screens. It's actually the hair is is called Timothy Oliphant. The guy underneath <laughs> is just a bloke called Steve. <laughs> yes, he is just an empty vessel. Uh, oh, harsh. He seems lovely. No, no, no. But you know, I've met him. Yeah, I've, I've met him. He's a, he's a, he's a very nice. But you you just you talk to the hair the mm. whole time. It's like Kermit. Know, but do you know the only time I have interviewed Timothy Oliphant, he had none. Oh, were you on? I was on set of Hitman. Hitman. Did they keep calling you when they meant him? A, a little bit. No, <laughs> and this is absolutely true. Uh, they, at one point, were going to, they thought it would be funny to put me in a car as like his stunt double, like to genuinely to put me in the back of a car during a sequence. They were going to put me in it. And then someone came up to the director and went, absolutely not, from insurance reasons. And also, he looks like a twat. Uh, but so, that yeah, they wouldn't let me do it. I was really disappointed. Wow, it's a shame because I've seen that film and... <laughs> <laughs> you would have improved it, yeah. I have to say. That's anyway. true. Yeah, I was in that, Sofia for that in Bulgaria. That's exciting. Have you met Timothy Oliphant's hair? I don't believe I have. <laughs> Certainly for no length of time. No. 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 Just looked dreamily at pictures of it. Mm, so dreamily. <laughs> so so dreamily. So so dreamily. Speaking of hair, okay. Some of the best hair in the business, you would argue, is Sebastian Stand, right? Yeah. Good hair. good hair. Solid hair. Good, good mm. hair. Mm. Well, he has signed up. His hair has signed up to play some of the worst hair in the business. Oh, you, I read this and thought I was hallucinating. But you're telling me it's true that Sebastian Stan... The is Winter playing, Soldier himself. The Winter Soldier is going full Trump. He's going full Trump. No. He is playing a young Donald Trump... No. ...in a film called The Apprentice. No. It is directed by Ali Abbasi. Uh, which is great because he's a very, very good director and it's going to be set in the 1970s and the 80s and it's going to examine uh, Trump at the time when he was building his real estate business. He said, obviously not reading it off his phone. <laughs> it will also examine his relationship with Roy Cohn, who is going to be played by someone someone good. It was yeah, it's going to be played by Jeremy Strong. It's That's it, Jeremy Strong. By. Yes. Um, I don't actually approve of casting hot people as Trump or the like. It's a serious upgrade. It's a massive upgrade. It is like, that is just... I know they make people hotter on screen, but come on. I mean, you could have just gone with a, like a bowl of soup and it would be hotter than Trump. Like, I mean... Gath Bacho is hotter than Trump. And, and it is just, just as orange. Offensive. <laughs> oh. tomato soup is a lovely shade of orange. It is. I just, I, I, I don't love this for him. I really don't. I know he's played some dickheads in the past, Sebastian and Stan. We did talk about villain. I, and Pam and Tommy, but yeah. like this is a whole other level. We did talk about villain origin stories, and this obviously is one. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't approve of giving oxygen to that man. Just no. stop it. How else is he going to walk around and breathe, James? Don't answer that. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> I, I I think this is good. I think this is good. I don't think anyone's going to... I don't think this is going to be friendly towards Trump. Oh, no, uh, I don't I think, think it is. But... Uh, it's a great chance for Sebastian Stan. <sighs> You're right. He's been doing like a kind of reverse Russian doll of toxic dickheads. Yeah. And it's all been leading to this. All roads <laughs> have led to Donald Trump. So <sighs> I'm, I'm all for it. All right. Okay. Longing, Fahrenheit. Freight car. car. <laughs> all that, all that sort of stuff. 17. Oh, man. Can you just imagine that in the Trump voice? I'm not going to do it. I no. can't do it. No. I can't do a Trump voice. No, Please, no Trump start. voices. I could do a Werner Herzog doing it. No. Ew, ew, ew. That's, that's, that's Freight car. Very late. King Charles. Fantastic. Yeah, Charles. great, great. A little bit. Anyway. All right, should we have another guest? Please. Please, please, Christ, have another guest. Who do you want? Uh, in fact, you know what? I'm not, I'm not even going to give you a choice. You're going to have 
William Aldroyd, who mm-hmm. is the director of Eileen, mm-hmm. which is a thriller starring Thomas and McKenzie and Anne Hathaway as uh, two women who get involved in a very complex, crimey-type <laughs> relationship in Boston mm-hmm. in the old timeys. Boston. Boston. We, we, talk, we talk about that a little bit. We, we talk do. about the Boston yeah, accent in this, in this interview. Very good. Yeah, pack the Have it. And with him is... I've already said, Thomas okay. McKenzie. All right. So there you go. So All that's right. exciting. Or have I said that? I don't know. Anyway, it's very warm in here. It is. Shut up. Leave me alone. Thomas and McKenzie, William Aldroyd. I spoke to them. They were good. Here it is. What do you want from me? Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director of Eileen and the star of Eileen, Eileen herself, William Aldroyd and Thomas McKenzie. How are you both? Very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Really great and excited. I'm a bit. I'm a big listener of podcasts, so this is very thrilling for me. <laughs> but but not this particular one, right, Thomason? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, you're you're our listener. I don't think so. Yeah, well, I will be now. <laughs> <laughs> right, smoothly done, smoothly done. Uh, William, what about yourself? You are you a podcast guy? Um, yes, to not uh, yes, um, <laughs> yes. I've listened to some podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you don't have to listen to podcasts to be on a podcast. No, I it's, it's listen good. to the radio. Actually, that's what I listen to most of the time. Okay, I listen to the radio, but um, uh. Yeah, I I listened I I listened to um I listened to uh a self-help podcast when I needed some help. <laughs> did it work? It did actually, yeah. Now I'm married. <laughs> William, I've read a, a, a number of interviews with you about Eileen and um in those interviews um it's been brought up that it's been about 5 years since Lady Macbeth and uh, and that you don't necessarily you you weren't in a rush, let's put it that way, yeah. to to follow up Lady Macbeth. But but after Lady Macbeth, you must have been inundated with a number of offers and projects. Yes, and then it, you you basically um, Lady Macbeth. Um, it was unexpected the the reaction we got to the film. I, I re- we really didn't expect to have this reaction. So in a way, there was a lot of noise after that, and a lot of people sort of suggest telling you what you needed to do. And I, it took a bit of time for that to go away so that you could think clearly about what you wanted. Mm. And then when it does go away, when, when when you can actually think straight, then it's very, 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 very instinctive, a gut reaction to something like Otessa's book. I just knew immediately, like, this would be fantastic. Like, I read it at the beginning of lockdown. Um, no one was telling me to read it. It didn't come in as a submission. It wasn't like this movie's being set up here, here, here. It was just uh, ple- pleasure reading. And I just thought, this character is fantastic. Wouldn't it be great to make a movie about the life of this person? And so I was very lucky to meet Otessa uh, and her husband, Luke, who uh, wrote the screenplay with her. And um, just knew that this, this, this interesting, complex character would attract a great actor. And uh, we were so lucky that Thomasin said she would do it. So I, I was, you know, it was something that was born very organically from, um, you know, what people say about passion project or something that was, but it started from the right place. You know what I mean? That, that I think that's the, I've got, I've got a file on my computer of about 30, 40 projects of things which I have started and didn't complete in the five <laughs> years since later. <laughs> and who knows whether we come back to, um, Come back to them later. I mean, I think Michael Winterbottom wrote a book in lockdown called Dark Matter, which is about the un 
produced projects of filmmakers. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting. The idea being that the universe is majority dark matter, and mm. i.e. the things that are not made yeah. rather than the things that are made. Yeah. And so it's very interesting that you know the, you, you, it's, it's 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 amazing what catches fire. Do you know what I mean? Like I think yeah. with this we were lucky that. All the elements came together at the right moment, and we got to make this movie together, and um, I'm really happy with it. You were talking about how, how things can catch fire. Is it the same from an actor's point of view? How, how do things catch fire for you? How did this project catch fire for you? The things that drew me to doing this project were Atessa. I'd already read her book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which I'd really, really, really enjoyed. Um, uh, Will, working with Will, um, I'd already seen Lady Macbeth before I, I knew of Eileen, and it was a stunning film, stunning performances, stunning, stunning direction. Um, and also, like, <laughs> reading Eileen, reading the book and reading the script, it was such an amazing character study and a really great opportunity for me to go super deep into a character. And all of the material was already there, so I didn't have to make everything up. I could just, like, refer back to the book and <laughs> and kind of, like, have all my answers right there. So that's what was – that's kind of what excited me. Um, yeah, a whole, a whole range of things. So that, that's what excited you. What, what, what scared you both? What daunted you both about this? I mean, what scared me was that it was, you know – there's a there's a real fear that if you make a movie and it's successful that it, you you don't make another one like it's a one hit wonder right. like there is the there is the pressure of the um, sophomore project whether it's a tricky second album whatever they said you know and it doesn't help that a lot of people are already sort of cursing you with that it's like yeah. you know don't fuck it up yeah. and it's like what well, you know I know it's like you've got a you've got a you know a, a smash hit debut novel from Otessa Moshberg you mm-hmm. know and. Uh, You've got Thomas and Mackenzie, and uh, you've got this some great finance. So, you know, good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> but, it, but, you know, so the, you know, and that's um, everything you can to try and lose that pressure. But it, but it is it is very real, you know. But, mm-hmm. I, but I'm lucky because I'm surrounded by really great people. So Ari Wegner, who shot Lady Macbeth, and shot Eileen, gave, you know, this incredible i mean really a genius and um and what was interesting is that and also nick emerson who the editor these, these are really the people who were like stabilized me who, who gave me so much support um in the time between lady Macbeth and eileen which i think was about six years um i hadn't made another movie but ari had made about 10 <laughs> so she came to eileen with so much more experience than you know really like uh, lady Macbeth was our first a film together um and it was amazing to use all of that information all that knowledge that she gained you know from the power of the dog and working with was if jane camping for example like what wonderful uh, and nick the same you know he'd cut a couple of other movies um more than a couple you know several other movies in, in the in the meantime so it felt like everything stepped up you know and then actually really encouraged me to also think quite differently to step up into mm-hmm. something which was you know, a bigger budget, and uh, there was, you know, there was more pressure, but actually it gave us an opportunity to be more ambitious in terms of the, the scope, the scale, and what the story we want to tell, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Thomason, for you, what, what what scared you? Um, 
I think just the context of what was going on in the world is what scared me. I think doing Eileen is, you know, I feel my happiest and my safest when I'm on a movie set. Um, so Eileen filming was like a saving grace for me, I think. It was the world that was scaring me. <laughs> um, and also I'd already worked twice with um, Ari Wigner and I'd worked once with Nick Emerson, the producer, um, the editor, sorry. Um, so, you know, I trusted them, um, and I was, actually, I was scared of doing the first film at the adaptation of an Otessa Moshfeg book, mm. because, like, she is so respected in the literary community, she's got so many fans, she's so talented, that was, like, I was a bit scared to, to, to take that on. Yeah, because a lot of, lot of people... Feel like they know Eileen so well. Yeah. And they love Eileen and they have very, very clear ideas of who Eileen is. But um, yeah, so that is daunting, isn't it? They've yeah. got such a celebrated character. Yeah. Um, and it's daunting, like doing an adaptation of any book, really, yeah. because there's immediately something to compare it to. And you're never going to be able to satisfy everybody because everybody has such a specific um, picture in their head that the, the book plays out in a particular way in their. Yeah. In their, that they visualize it in their heads. Like mm. you're never going to satisfy everyone with the movie that you make. No. But um, I think you know we we feel like at least tonally, it's in the spirit of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's mm. something that yeah. Tessa feels that very strongly. Yeah, and Tessa was part a massive part of making it as well. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> luckily we had yeah. her. Yeah. Well, she. I'm, I'm guessing she was on set a lot. You know, she and, and Luke. No, because of COVID. I mean, they couldn't come. Oh. Um, you know, I mean, we had some real hurdles in our way you know for mm. example like because we were still in the situation where if a family member had covid um then you had to isolate mm. on set so you know we had ari wagner in a tent mm-hmm. outside set with a monitor essentially because her partner <laughs> because her partner had covid yeah so it was really um it was really difficult it's already difficult yeah. to shoot a movie in like 26 days in the free in the freezing cold winter of new mm. jersey and, and the then, christmas break in between yeah exactly it was um it was it was tough but yeah. um it, it looks cold i mean it looks like yeah. it's cold yeah that was real <laughs> there's no there's no faking that no acting required no <laughs> i on one of the first days i was literally rolling in the snow covered in vomit fake vomit <laughs> in the, like a short like above knee length dress, tights, heels, rolling in the snot. And I can hear Will about 10 metres away, all wrapped up in a nice big coat, laughing at me. <laughs> what you were doing was very funny. And then going, again, again, again. No, but I didn't, it was, I didn't punish you. You were a good sport. Yeah. You were a good sport. They, you know, I mean, it was... Um, Absolutely freezing. To be fair, you had a heated car waiting for you to jump into it <laughs> in between takes. It's not true. <laughs> this was like a vintage know, car. There was not. No, no, the other, the other car. The other car, that big black car. Okay, not on that day. Oh, no, no, no. You're right. There was, there was on that day. Oh, you're, you're backtracking now. Okay, I, I, I get it. Yeah, I, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, William, you were talking about the, this idea that everyone visualizes a book when they when they read it. Is this film the visualization you saw in your head when you read the book? Uh, pretty much. I mean, I think Otessa's images are so clear on the page that actually they were they were very um, easy to lift off the page and and to put on the screen. And actually, I think probably 
the movie is better than what I had visualized because um, some people feel that, you know, there's, there's that, there's that thing, isn't it? People say, which is like, if, if you as a director put your head into a black box and you, and the movie you see in your mind can be projected out of that box onto the screen, mm-hmm. would you want that? Because there are definitely directors who think like that, which mm-hmm. is their, their vision is so pure, so clear that everything in the process of making the film gets in the way, it corrupts their pure vision of what that movie is. And I don't work like that at all. I think um, every every challenge that you that you go through, every compromise that you feel that you have to make, every um, budgetary restraint, every conversation you have with an HOD, everything makes the movie better. Mm-hmm. Because actually, if we just saw the movie that I saw in my head, I wonder whether it would just be very limited. It's mm-hmm. actually through the process of making those compromises, of working with Ari, working with Nick, working with the production designer, Craig, working with... Olga, who did the costumes, all of these mm. great, great people. They bring you so many new ideas and fresh ideas. And I think the look of the movie specifically, and, and Richard Reed Parry did the music. Mm. I mean, like, I could never have come up with this uh, score on my own. It was in collaboration with him that we found this. And it's such an important, integral part of this film. I think mm. everybody who works on the movie is in the movie. Mm. You know, I really feel like they've, they've been given the freedom to go away and come up with what they think is Eileen that they see from when they read the script, when they read the book. And then we've incorporated all those elements and we've brought it together to make this 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 movie. Yeah, you know? yeah. You must have come into this with ideas, having read the book and loved the book, yeah. of, of who Eileen is. And, and at, at times did they run counter to, to Williams? Uh, did you butt heads at any point? I butted heads, I don't think, but... I mean, like, my process is I'll have ideas and I'll express those thoughts and those ideas, but I'm not going to hold them to the director. Like, I'll, I just like to say what I'm thinking and feeling, like, get it out in the open and then trust that those things will be expressed in the film somehow. There's this astonishing, the centerpiece of the film is this incredible extended sequence with between between you and Anne Hathaway that, that then brings in another character that I won't I won't reveal. Um, mm. Was that the key for you getting that sequence right? That that back and forth between Eileen and Rebecca. It was it was certainly when I read it in the book, I thought this is going to make an amazing scene on screen, you know. And it was because it's long; it's, it's a long, long scene, and you know, mm. and actually the, the the key was breaking it down into bits that we could shoot uh, I'm thinking about it now actually there was an interesting thing we had decided to shoot the, the scene over two days so we, we we split it in half and there's a moment where Eileen excuses herself from the scene to go to the bathroom and so we shot up to that point but then actually one of the takes we just let the camera roll and then we just let it, the, the second day shoot and Annie's Annie's performance just she just carried on the second day's mm-hmm. Um, scene, the, the continuation of the scene on on day one, but she oh. wasn't prepared to shoot it that day, and so what came through was something which like no one was prepared to shoot that that bit of the film, yeah. right. but including her, but she did it. She stayed in character, she did it, and something was extraordinary in that moment. Do you remember it? I just felt yeah. like it was like in we ended up using a lot of that take, yeah. yeah, in the movie because it was so real. She was actually thinking in the moment because she was not. Um, she hadn't prepared to do it, so yeah. it felt very, very fresh, very alive, actually. And um, 
And then, you know, the next day we, we, we made sure we covered it all again. So we had the options and so on. But that, it, I think that, that was one of the, the most important elements of getting that scene right. Yeah. That it felt, um, that we had so many twists and turns, you know, that it's like from an editing point of view as well, you know, we got to hit so many different beats and moments. And that's why we needed to make sure we had it covered because yeah. you can't rely on it just being shot all in one because it, it has to do so many different things. Yeah. Absolutely. And Thomason, from your from your point of view, what was it like filming that over two days? I was just grateful I knew my lines when the camera kept rolling. Because <laughs> like, well, I, did, I didn't plan to, I didn't know we were going to be filming all of that yet either. So I was like, thank the Lord, I knew it. That would have been really embarrassing if I was the one that let the team down. Yeah. Um, imagine that if I was the one who like prevented Anne Hathaway from like, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it was really, it was it was a really tough, it was tough because it's a complicated, difficult scene, a sequence to pull off. Yeah. Um, so it was a big undertaking, but it was also like we got to see said unnamed, unmentioned character. We got to see her incredible performance, like yeah. which I was completely stunned by. Yeah. Um, I got to wield a something or rather, which <laughs> yeah. I won't say what, because it's not to give anything away, but... It was a lot of fun, but it was it was tricky. Fantastic! Oh, I do let you go. Um, I just want to ask one last question. So, when you when you go back into ADR, especially in this movie where you're doing an accent, uh, mm. and it's months later, do you find that it takes a while to plug back into the accent? Have you forgotten the accent completely? How is it? Is it something that comes naturally to you? Weirdly, like because I think the um, Massachusetts Boston accent is quite a specific one it was quite easy for me to slip back into because I, I remembered the very specific sounds, whereas other accents, if they're a bit more subtle, they're, they're more difficult to remember because um, you don't have to work as hard on them to to nail the different sounds. So I love this accent. Like I kind of like just slip into it quite regularly. I'm quite proud of it. ADR. <laughs> yeah. Have, yeah. <laughs> Precisely. On that note, I'm going to let you go. Uh, William Thomason, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much indeed. Thank nice you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, that was William Aldroyd and Thomason McKenzie. And now it's time to barrel straight into the reviews section of the show. Christmas is coming. The goose is getting fat. Eileen, is that kind of a Christmassy movie? It's snowy. Yeah, it is. It it's is snowy. Christmas. It's Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. It is Christmas. Hmm. It's a time for miracles. So be of good cheer, Helen, and tell us about Eileen. Yeah, this is a this is an odd film. So uh, Thomas and Mackenzie plays this uh, young woman who is working in uh, a prison as a sort of uh, secretarial helper. She helps with the visits and, and organizing things like that. And she's also looking after her alcoholic, non-working father at home, who's played very, very well by Shea Wigan. So good in this film. Always great. I mean, so good. He's one of those 27 percenters. He's so oh good my every God. time he turns up. Um, 28, if anything. Indeed. And she is, um, I'll be honest, I think she's a bit of a perv. I think she is. She is. She's a massive perv. Yeah. And she is a, a person who's living entirely in her own mind. She's very repressed. She's very hemmed in by the expectations of her town, her people, um, her job, her family, everything. And and it's sort of bursting out of her in weird ways, weird um, fantasies, um, weird behavior some of the time as well. And she sort of sees a kind of a lifeline when this very glamorous 
woman turns up at the prison. I should have said is the 1960s. I don't know if I mentioned that. It is set in the 1960s. I said old timey times. Okay, old timey times. That covers it. So um, Rebecca, who is played by Anne Hathaway, is everything that Eileen wishes she could be. She is gorgeous. She's beautifully dressed. She's very worldly, very Mm -hmm. experienced. She has a lot of Mm -hmm. education and and has traveled and, um, and is... Absolutely stunning looking, by the way, if I didn't mention that. And um, and Eileen is just a little bit obsessed with her. She's drawn to her. And it's not clear, is it sexual? Is it is it envy? Is it a desire for connection? Is it, is it a feeling of something else? But she can't explain it even, I think, to herself, but she feels something and she's kind of becomes obsessed with this woman. And and Rebecca seems to kind of reciprocate to, to some degree as well and sort of be drawing her in and, and cultivating a friendship. And it leads to odd places that I won't go into yeah. um it's a very interesting film because i feel like it's a it, it feels like there's a there's a break point in this film and it becomes something completely different completely than what you thought you were watching and i kind of like that mm-hmm. as an idea and as a concept i didn't think it was brilliantly executed in this case i didn't i didn't feel like it was um i didn't feel like the follow through was perhaps everything i wanted it to be but um but you know, up until that point, it's this really interesting kind of character study, and then it becomes something kind of batshit. So I appreciate that they've swung for the fences. It's based on a very successful book by Otessa Mosfeg, who also um, was one of the people adapting that for the screen. With her husband. Yeah. With her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, it's, it's obviously like faithfully done. But I just, I don't know. I, I didn't feel like it worked 100% on the screen. And this is nothing against the performances. I thought the performances across the board were great. I thought William Aldroyd, in terms of the, the cinematography and the direction, gets this real sense of this kind of oppressive, grey, um, stultifying, claustrophobic mm-hmm. little small town that, that mm-hmm. Eileen's kind of trapped in by her dad and by her job and everything that she knows. Um, I, th- I thought, it, you know, it looked great. It was fantastically well performed but I just I couldn't quite make that leap of tone with it this case on this occasion um, yeah well we gave this one two stars uh, I think I, that's I, harsh I think it is harsh because I think it, it looks fantastic it's it's mm. <laughs> it's in focus no um, it, it does it looks fantastic the performances are great and I, I actually I liked The Lurch into a completely mm. different film by the end I think it leads to the most interesting scenes in the film I'll be honest with you uh, we talked a little bit about it. We tipped it around it with William Aldroyd and Thomas and McKenzie. But there's a, a really powerful monologue by uh, another actor towards the end of the film, which is great. And there's a, a very, very long scene between Anne Hathaway, who's terrific, so and good. and Thomas and McKenzie, which which unfolds in ways that, you know, again, I think you're expecting this story to go in one way mm. um, based upon similar films you might be I don't know you might be expecting Carol 2 it ain't that it no. ain't that at all uh, I also thought it was an interesting companion piece to Last Night in Soho in mm. which Thomas McKenzie is basically playing the same character uh, who's somewhat meek somewhat introverted but wants to be a bit more experienced in the ways of the world shall we say who is utterly beguiled by this intoxicating blonde yeah. goddess um, and then things go wrong from there. Yeah. But it, 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 the film is called Eileen for a reason. That's all I'm going to yeah, say yeah, in much. that. Uh, but I, I liked it more than our review uh, did. I'd be in the three-star camp. But Same we are mentioned. officially in the two-star camp on Eileen. Come on. Jimbo. Yes. It is Christmas. 
It's the time of miracles. <laughs> so be of good cheer and tell me about Candy Cane Lane. <laughs> Candy Cane Lane. Now, I have to be honest, I was tasked with reviewing this for the magazine and I wondered what I had done in a former life to deserve such an indignity. Uh, and I sat down with a very heavy heart to watch this film. And while I can't say exactly I was, I mean, pleasantly surprised might be overstating it, but it's nowhere near as bad as you think this is going to be. And the main reason for that is it's fucking demented. Mm. So it's a film which reunites Eddie Murphy with his boomerang director, uh, Reginald Hudlin, and it stars... Oh, he came back. <laughs> Very good. Uh, <laughs> tried to throw him away, didn't work. Uh, Eddie Murphy plays Chris... Carver, and he is a dad who is obsessed with Christmas, so much so that he called his kids Nick, Joy, and what, Holly? I can't even remember. Uh, His wife is Carol also. Of course she is, yes. And so the idea is that Candy Cane Lane, which is where he lives in California, they have this annual competition to see which house can have the most gaudy, read, spectacular decorations on it. Like, Clark Griswold would have been put to shame by this, believe me. So, but he really, really wants to win. And the reason he wants to win is because obviously the true meaning of Christmas is great big sacks of capitalist cash and there's a hundred grand prize on offer for the house with the best decorations. There is, and I shit you not, a Matrix house with the green like code running mm. down and the guys outside wearing, you know, long coats and sunglasses. So, how the fuck is that Christmassy? It's an, <laughs> excellent, an excellent question. Uh, so, anyway, so to win this competition, he does what you would expect from a Christmas movie. He sells his soul to an evil elf and bargains away, you know, essentially his immortal soul to win this thing. That is not what I expected. It's not what I expected either because this film genuinely, and I looked this up, I honestly wondered whether this had begun life as a horror film and had somehow mutated into a festive comedy. But that's not the case. But it is packed with horror tropes. He makes a deal with a fucking demon who then comes for his soul by unleashing the 12 days of Christmas as plagues. So like the 12 plagues of Christmas. So you've got maids of milking coming at him, geese are laying in his face. You've got, you know, lords are leaping, all this shit, like psychotic partridges. Can I just say, Chris is looking at us like James has gone mad. This is an accurate description (laughs) of the film. It's the film. I mean, the maids of milking scene will never ever leave your eyeballs, believe me. And it's absolutely fucking wild. And it's got this really sort of it's got a real horror edge to it, to the point where at one point they're separating. And they're like, Don't people only do this in horror films? And his wife turns around and says, what do you think this is? And I was like, this is 100% a horror film with like a veneer of comedy over the top and all the blood taken out. So on the one hand, I'm kind of a little sad for the horror film we'll never get to see, which I think is desperate to break out of this film. But on the other hand, the script, which is shall we say, generously inconsistent. It's all over the shop. Sometimes it's terrible, but there are some genuinely brilliant lines in it. There's a really funny diehard riff in there, which I'm certain Helen enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, 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 are, there are sentient Christmas ornaments, one of which is Nick Offerman doing a Dickensian accent what for reasons. What the fuck is this yeah, for, no, it's right? really, it's not, He's not even kidding. It is absolutely off the chain fucking batshit. Uh, and, you know, I, I, you know, I don't even want to say any of the other crazy things that are in it because I honestly think people should discover it for themselves. This is never going to be a Christmas classic. It is not going to be one that you go back to every year. But I almost encourage you to watch it just to experience the insanity of this film firsthand. I gave it three. I think that's fair. Which I stand by. Yeah. It's on Prime. It's, it's on, on Prime, Prime Video. video. I, I, I mean, honestly, I had a, a similar experience watching it. It is it is really going for it. I did talk to the writer and the director for Bah Humbug, and I, I did open by asking, were you inspired by the old joke about the dyslexic who sells his soul to Santa? And they, they said no, but I still have my doubts. Yeah. 
didn't the writer also he lived on Candy Cane Lane? It's yeah, a real he, place. He grew yeah. up in El Segundo. I think his his family has a house there. Um, we should also mention Gillian Bell is the is the Christmas evil Christmas elf, and the, she's always good at being the evil. evil elf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I I just I okay. had I mean it's so bizarre. I had quite a lot of fun with it, and there is a family. You know, there's very much a family message at the heart, as with almost all yeah. Eddie Murphy films in the last. 15 years. Okay. He is doing the Eddie Murphy shtick, as you would imagine, yeah. you know, but it's just, they, I mean, to say they pushed the boat out here is a fucking mm. understatement. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I described it as somewhere between It's a Wonderful Life and Drag Me to Hell. You had my curiosity. <laughs> now you have my Christmassy attention. Uh, honestly, that's, that's, you've sold it. You've sold it to me. That sounds absolutely batshit insane. Um, yes, 10 stars. <laughs> 10 Christmassy stars for Candy Cane Lane. My God. Helen, I mean, there's so many terrible Christmas movies. I'm, I'm flicking on Sky at the moment, and it's like, obviously there's a cottage industry that just churns this shit out. Mm. But there are proper Christmas movies. There are fun ones, as well. yeah. Is Genie one of those Christmas movies? What a second. I thought so, actually. I really enjoyed this. So this is, uh, yes, based on Bernard and the Genie from 1991, which is, fun's a fact, also the year that Papa Esiedu was born. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and he stars this time as Bernard, who is a mild-mannered... Um, Antiquities expert like Mr. Gruber in New York City. He he is he's driven hard by his evil boss, who's played by Alan Cumming, and uh, and he's frequently kept late at work and misses family events, in particular his daughter's birthday, which leads uh, his wife to basically say, "Look, we need a separation. This is not working." Takes her his daughter with her to her mother's, just outside town, and Bernard is left bereft. And in his bereavement, if you will, sits there uh, rubbing an old fancy box. <laughs> Not a euphemism. He does what any, he does any, what any middle-aged man does <laughs> yep. when left alone, when wife and, and, and child and, go and away child for the weekend. Away. And uh, he is he is very alarmed, obviously, when there is a poof of smoke and wouldn't you know it, you? Melissa McCarthy appears as Flora, a sort of celtic person. No, just a person. Um, A Celtic-ish warrior type person who was uh, enchanted by an evil wizard a thousand or two years before. Forgets to do the accent, doesn't she? Doesn't really do any kind of accent. I think think the idea is that she, like within a couple of seconds, she picks up his language. I think the same idea is sort of nodded at in the original Bernard and the Genie. Yes. Um, And yeah, and just sort of hijinks and shoot. And because Bernard is such a decent guy and such a well-meaning guy, instead of spending all his time doing what we do, and, you know, like wishing to see Batgirl or whatever, he basically um, sits there and, you know, wishes that they would have fun together. And they basically go out and they have all sorts of hijinks around New York. And it's it's quite cute. And I find, I felt like uh, the director, by the way, is Sam Boyd. Obviously, Richard Curtis rewrote his own script uh, mm-hmm. for the script. But I felt like he did kind of rein Melissa McCarthy in a little bit. Like she isn't firing on every cylinder like she sometimes does. I felt like this was a little bit more restrained. There is heart to this film and I did really enjoy all the scenes between Papa Siedu and Melissa McCarthy. I thought they were quite a fun mm. double act actually, which I wasn't expecting to necessarily feel from this. Some of the jokes are lifted absolutely verbatim oh, from yeah. the original, verbatim. which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet the plot is significantly different because the original Bernard had a cheating girlfriend, but that mm-hmm. was it. This there were drugs involved. Yeah, and, this yeah. is a much sort of higher stakes adventure because, like, you really do want this this guy to get his wife and his child back. You really mm-hmm. do are rooting for this little family. So, um, I don't know. I find it quite charming. It's not, you know, in any way 
original. We've seen this kind of, you know, crazy person from out of town hangs out with a New Yorker and learns about life. I mean, it's very elfy in that way. Uh, it's not as good as elf, but then what is? Um, but I was amused. I, I I had a nice time. I actually watched it twice. So, yeah. There you go. Do you know what? I, I, I think Pape's Esiedu is fucking brilliant. He's so likable. He is so effortlessly charming. There's a show that Joe Barton did called The Lazarus Project, mm. which is on Sky, and he is just brilliant in it because he's so every man but funny in this self-deprecating way and he's very charming very entertaining he's I mean bear in mind that Papa Sierra you know from I don't know like Gangs of London to The Capture to, to I May Destroy You Hamlet yeah, he's done a lot of dramatic roles but actually he's got real comedy chops yeah. and I think he, he he absolutely for me he was this film for me I yeah. thought he was fantastic I thought the two of them together are great and you're right she is slightly restrained they're really charming together she is doing her Melissa McCarthy thing, albeit a slightly toned down version. And sometimes I think, you know, take Spy, like when she really cuts loose, I think that's mm. when I rather enjoy her. Uh, so I didn't think, you know, it worked in that regard. And I, 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 you know, the story of it is kind of schmaltzy, but I do think this is, this is one of these films saved by one stroke of brilliant casting. I think he, as the lead in this, makes this quite enjoyable. Yeah. And I, I had a pretty good time watching it. Yeah. Well, our reviewer disagreed with everyone and gave it two stars. She so did. there we go. I would Two have given stars. it three. I, I would go three. But. Yeah. Uh-huh. I wish I wish upon another star. Aww. No. Two stars then for Genie. And real quick, because i got to yeah. run. There's a couple of horror films out this week. They're Christmassy themed. There's yeah. It's a Wonderful Knife. And there's Something in the Barn, which are both on Shudder. Yeah. But we'll be talking about those properly next week, Hell's Bells. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but good. Thumbs yeah. up. Really enjoyed both. Uh, there's something in the barn based on a Norwegian legend about barn elves, uh, which uh, I now know much more about, and that was really fun. And it's a wonderful knife, as you'd expect. Someone defeats a serial killer, and then, for various reasons, wishes they hadn't, and wouldn't you know it, they find that life would have been worse without it. Ugh. So I have to go back and figure out a new way to, to, to live. I've got a couple of notes on that one, but generally I had fun. All right, good stuff. Uh, but there is another film out this week and we're going to talk about very, very quickly. Aki Karasmaki is back with Fallen Leaves. Mm. Yeah, this is uh, a sort of comedy drama, I would, I guess, uh, in modern day Helsinki. I think that's true of most Karasmaki films. So this stars Alma Poisty. And again, I apologize for my Scandinavian pronunciation or lack thereof. She plays Ansa, who's a, su- a supermarket worker. Um, and sh- her path keeps crossing with Holopa, who's played by Jussi Vatanen, um, who is a kind of, uh, works on, you know, honestly, I don't know what he does. He does something with metal work. Their paths keep crossing. It's almost like, you know, fate or something is trying to bring them together. But equally, it's not always clear. It's not like, you know, it's a meet cute and then everything works out. It's, it's just sort of, they just keep being on each other's periphery somehow for a little while. And you see their own lives. And as with a lot of Karismaki films, you know, this is uh, working class people struggling to get by, struggling to make ends meet. She's on a zero hours contract. He's struggling with, frankly, alcoholism, semi-functional alcoholism, I would say. And so their lives are not easy. And that kind of is one of the reasons they keep kind of moving around, not being able to find each other. And um, and yeah, so it's kind of this strange romance on one hand, and then also not uh, at the same time it's 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 kind of like messing with all everything you expect of almost this kind of r- once they set up this kind of romantic tension between them it, it kind of doesn't go in the way you expect mm-hmm. always um 
And there's a, a sort of thick thread running in the background. Every time anyone has a radio on or the TV on, it's talk about, you know, the, the war in Ukraine. And it is, and so it's reminding you of the kind of the darkness out there mm. and, the, and the toughness in the world and and everything that's that's horrifically wrong and, and getting worse. So it's a very, it's a very kind of deadpan film. There's a lot of really heavy stuff in it, but at the same time, it's very funny. It's really kind of dryly witty a lot of the time and beautifully judged character portrayals. Um, so, and it's not very long either, I should mention. Like, you know, so it's... Sold, you sort just of, like Candy yeah, Cane Lane. You can, keep, you can take a, ch- a chance on it. But honestly, I, I had a really nice time with it. I thought All it was right. really good. We haven't got a review up yet. What would you give it? I think it's going to be a four stars. Four I feel stars. Like it's, it's that kind of film. It did very well at Cannes this year. Um, it has been generally reviewed very, very well across the board. This is not me off on a weird tangent but um but no i i think it's i think it's kind of lovely fantastic for helen stars then for fallen leaves and ordinarily that would be it for this week's emperor podcast but we have a special bonus for you guys uh, a couple weeks ago fingernails came out on apple tv plus it is a very very dark modern romance starring jesse buckley riz ahmed and jeremy allen white and those actors couldn't talk when the movie came out because of the strike, but now the strike is over. They can talk to us. And lo and behold, Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed crammed themselves into a computer. I believe that's how it works. And had a chat with Amon Warman about this movie and a great many things besides. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the stars of Fingernails, Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed. How are you both? Very good. Riz, I'm going to start with you. There's a line that Amir has that has really stuck with me. Everything is too simple in films. Watching a love story feels safe. Being in love doesn't. So that's really stuck with me. Was part of the reason why you were drawn to this film because of its lack of simplicity? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, so often the way we kind of dream about or fantasize about love the stories we tell about love are so at odds with the kind of messy reality and you know that's something that you know is actually you know portrayed in this film as well where Amir they're there at the cinema and it's you know they've got a season of rom-coms that they're showing outside the cinema and this film is as much about falling in love as it is about our ideas on love Um, and it is inherently messy and it is inherently something that you can't pin down, no matter how much you might try and test it or quantify it. So, yeah, I, th- I thought it was amazing to kind of be part of a project that is kind of has has some of the sweetness and the melancholy of, say, a rom-com. But it, it's almost an anti-rom-com, you know, it's about saying that there's no neat answers. There's everything's just a glorious mess, you know. Mm hmm. Um, Jesse, I imagine that you were in when you looked at the script and you saw that within 10 seconds, your character was singing Total Eclipse of the Heart, right? (laughs) 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 Did you even need to read the script at that point? You're just like, okay, I'm I'm doing it. It's it's, it's done. (laughs) No, actually, being completely honest, that only came... I, I don't even know if it was in the script. I, I, I only realized that I was actually going to have to sing it when I was doing um uh like ADR at the end. And Christos was like, okay, and now you will sing. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> this is like the end of my career. Never mind my 
time. <laughs> um, and he's like, can you do it badly? I was like, yeah, no problem. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a shock, but, you know, actually I've sat, you know, I've sung that song since I was about like 15 with, I don't know, friends. <laughs> badly. I've sung it badly since I was 15. Like that that's a karaoke go-to for a few of my friends. So it's it's a banger. But your character, Anna, is, is is so interesting. I feel like she has to you have to act being in love, but also falling in love. Because you got the comfort of that relationship with the boyfriend and then the spark of something new. How did you go about building and showcasing that with those two different relationships, both individually and with your co-stars? Uh, well, it was quite, you know, when you get Riz and Jeremy are just so amazing. And, um, I've just like loved so much of their work for so long. So it was such a like pleasure to be able to kind of come on set and, you know, everything else kind of doesn't really matter when you get to stand opposite both of those brilliant men. Um, and I don't know, like, I guess, like Riz said, it's about kind of the chaos of the in-between of what we define love to be and the kind of how we try to to desperately make it real, even though it's a complete mess, <laughs> mm. whether you're in 100% or 50% or whatever you're in. So I guess I was kind of just curious about the in-betweenness of it all and not knowing and, you know, Sometimes <clears throat> we can fool ourselves into feeling um, comfortable or like we have some control by defining love and mm -hmm. by making it 100% or getting married or whatever. But in my experience, that's never the truth anyway. <laughs> it's like yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you still, um, like Anna says, you still have to like work at it every day and you just can't mm -hmm. take it for granted. It's not something that's a given. Love is like, the scariest and hardest thing to um and most beautiful thing to move through and um yeah i mean and that's why i guess you know standing between both of these brilliant men it was like it was it was hard and it was brilliant yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um the first thing i did when this movie ended was check my hands i'm not sure if that's a common response but <laughs> that was the first thing i found myself doing Assuming you guys didn't suffer for your art, how did they do that with the fingernails? Because it looked very sort of convincing and painful in the moment. Well, I went method, you know, it's just how I was. Just the kind of I, am. Um, I was a bit disappointed that these guys didn't follow suit, but yeah. yeah. The year-long research process for me. Of, um, <laughs> nah. I mean, it's, isn't it? Isn't it this is, it's such a visceral feeling, isn't it? It's yeah. like, you kind of don't even have to act anything because just the, if you just say right i mean i'm one of those people where if you put something against your nails or put them on a chalkboard i'm like jumping right now in my own skin so yeah. just every, every time anyone even mentions the idea of it i'm like a freak out so yeah it's clever isn't it quite quite a visceral little detail to kind of make everyone lean in and i, I think i certainly had that effect on me yeah yeah me also um you're talking a little bit about love and with that, there, there's an element of risk to it. There's an unknown factor. There's a leap that you have to take. 
with your careers, what's a risk that you've taken that's paid off? Oh, my God. Like literally doing anything ever. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I always have a point where I'm like, you know, it's such a ma- you spend most of your try- time trying to convince somebody that you're really good. Mm. And that they should, you know, you want to do this and you feel like so excited and invested into doing something. And then you're about like a month or like the month beforehand is horrific. And you think, Mm. oh, my God, this is an awful idea. Mm. (laughs) I should never, ever leave my house, let alone go on a film set. (laughs) and then you get on set and it's just like the best feeling in the world <laughs> so mm. I would say that's like a risk it's always a risk it has to be a risk like if you're not mm. if you're not frightened or you haven't got like a kind of curiosity or a dose of fear there's no point you know um mm-hmm. uh that's the mm. kind of adrenaline rush and um but yeah I guess if it's it's always a risk yeah yeah, I like that answer. Um, we we mentioned it earlier, but the the funniest joke in the film for me is the the Hugh Grant movie marathon uh, because nobody knows more about love than Hugh Grant. Like, having that uh, sort of on screen was was fantastic. If you were going to program a season of movies about love, what are some of the films that might show up on your list? My would be uh, Leos Carax, Les Amants de Pontneuf, like hands down. Mm. <laughs> Any particular yeah. reason why? Oh, it's just like such an well, it's my favorite ever film ever. Oh wow. It's that like scene on the bridge with the fireworks and Denis Levon, Julia Pinoche. Like mm. I think I watch it at least once a week and I it just blows my mind and wow. it makes me feel like, oh my god, that's what love feels like, like this operatic epic messy vagabonds who are just kind of like animals running across a bridge in the most beautiful set place in the world and um yeah I, it's i think it's just and it took like 110 years to make which wow yeah. <laughs> wow wow, wow. that's such that's such an amazing answer i've got nothing anywhere as good as that but i was thinking like something that just gave me that feeling as a teenager of going like, oh man, that's love. That must be what love is. It was a Bollywood film Ooh. called Ham Dil De Chuke Sanam. And mm. I think it was with Salman Khan and Ashwarya Rai. And um, it's mainly because of the soundtrack. There's this one amazing song on it that Jesse's going to sing for us now. That I'm just- <laughs> Let me just warm up, friend. DVD extras. Yeah. Um, I don't know. For me, music is such a big part of love. I almost have an easier time talking about songs that really put me in that place than I do films off the top of my head. I don't know. I kind of operate in more of a kind of oral uh, way. I often feel embarrassed to say I, I, I'm not very well watched when it comes to films, um, Zam, compared to music. But for for me, it's it's this. It was just the soundtrack on that film, and then also uh, Ar Rahman's soundtrack on Bombay. It's uh, it's really an incredible soundtrack, and it always kind of makes me think. It just transports me back to that teenager that I was. Where I'd never been in love, and I was like, oh, that 
that sound must be what it feels like. That's what it is, you know, and you just in your mind forever. Final question for you. The wordless communication that you guys have in this is so great. And I was wondering how much of that is on the page and how much of that is just you guys finding it in the moment. And then also as a follow-up to that, was there any choice that either of you made that surprised the other as you were filming this movie? Because just as there's an unknown quantity in love, I thought there's an unknown quantity in acting that you guys sort of fill in as you're actually sort of putting the performance on screen, which always fascinates me. Well, I want to jump in here and say that I didn't make any choices in this film because I had Jesse and every single thing that Jesse was doing every day, take to take, was surprising me and catching me off guard. And it was just, I was able to just be there and be absorbed in that roller coaster, much like Amir is, because of, I'm an embarrasser, but Jesse's it, like humongous and unparalleled talent, you know? It felt to me like, I mean, I, I've got to also say, I hadn't done a project in about two and a half years. And I just felt like, oh God, what is what is this? What am I doing? What is, you know, like Amir's feeling cynical about love. I was f- feeling cynical about this whole thing of acting and what are we doing and making films. And it was actually working with Jesse kind of reinvigorated me and re- reconnected me to what I'm passionate about in this, which is being surprised, which is, you know, as you said, the wordless communication that speaks volumes, which which she can just emit through the, the force of her her energy, you know? So honestly, I felt like for me, this was just the easiest thing. I was just able to kind of sit in the car and and go on this ride that she was kind of taking me on. So mm-hmm. I, I felt very lucky. That's terribly embarrassing. Um, uh, uh, well, I think, you know, like from, we've known each other around for like a while and it's so nice to get to work with people who you, respect so much and love as people and Mm. from the get-go we were like let's just be a bloody team um you know let's like jump off the cliff and surprise ourselves and not know and um yeah like doing a kind of love story or a rom-com or trying to figure out what the hell that is is a very like it's very vulnerable place to put yourself in if you're really going to do it. And um, you have to have like a kind of partner in crime who's willing to go there and like, you know, not just try and make love beautiful, but make it uncomfortable and make it unknowable and make it like have each other's backs to do things that are scary or that might even be scary for Christos or, you know, and like day after day we would, both come in and be like, well, then it was going to happen today. And, <laughs> and things would always happen. Um, but I think, you know, for us, our relationship, the relationships you have to have on set are everything. Mm. Um, and it's not always the way, but when it is like your team, mm-hmm. um, it's, I mean, it's just the best feeling in the world. And yeah. I love that. Um, and I love this movie. And I love this chat. Uh, Jesse Buckley, Riz Ahmed, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Okay. okay, that was Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed. And Fingernails is out right now on Apple TV+. Plus.
give it a go if you don't want a Christmassy film this week because otherwise it's just Christmas. Christmas is coming at you and like Cleopatra and Fallen Leaves, which is technically also a Christmas film. Is it? Shut no. up. Uh, anyway, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... Well, as ever, a whole ton of people, but I can't remember any of them, apart from, yeah, very yeah. exciting, Wonka is coming out. Woo. I love this movie so unashamedly, so unabashedly. It's one of my films of the year. Um, and I was delighted to talk to Keegan-Michael Key, Ooh. who plays the chief of police in that film, but also next week sees the return to the podcast after a great absence of Timmy Two Meats. <gasps> Timothy Chalamet is back. And no, I didn't explain the Timmy Two Meats nickname to him. That would have taken far too long and then it would have been wrapped up. So anyway, it'll be, it'll be our little joke. We could do Timmy Two Meats. But anyway, that's very, very exciting. And there will be someone else on the podcast as well because uh, actors are being thrown at us as if out of a cannon. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Uh, it is absolutely crazy, but, uh, but we welcome it. It we is true. It. In fact, do you know who's on this week's Pilot TV podcast? Is it actors? Is it is it <laughs> Malcolm actors? It's, it's the Keanu Reeves. That's Keanu Reeves. We have Keanu Reeves on Pilot TV this week. Well, there you go. Absolutely. That's very, very exciting. I'm thinking indeed. he's back. Yes, my God, he's slumming it. Uh, anyway, well done. Well done. <laughs> Well done, Jimbo. Uh, that is why I have had the Pilot TV <laughs> subreddit banned and I shall not be bringing it back. Uh -huh. You've ruined it. You've ruined it. Your Christmas wish is now revoked. Anyway, that is it. That is it. All that remains now is for me to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Goodbye, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Goodbye to James Dyer. Goodbye. And it's goodbye for me. It's Christmas. It's a time of miracles. So I'm off to admire the Nakatomi Plaza. I hear it's particularly resplendent this time of year. Ew. Just keep, just stand well back. That's oh, all no. I'm going to say. What? Because it's a building that might explode. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. I am not talking about my penis. Blow the roof. <laughs> Lucky roof. Lucky <laughs> roof.